Lord, thank you for condescending, for coming down, and for dying in our place, and for bringing us to salvation and letting, <laughs> letting us recognize that it's you who grab onto us instead of just us to you. God, grasp us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. And if you're using the provided pew Bibles, um, go, it's page 915. Um, have, you, have you ever worked for, uh, for someone who loves to lord it over you how much they deserve to work or like supervise you? How, maybe somebody who who really loved their position and uh, and and they they you know they strutted their stuff all the time like the the person that uh, always has to look extra special in the office because they want everybody to know how great they are like a peacock right when I think of strutting their stuff I think of a peacock walking around with its feathers all uh, splayed out making really loud obnoxious noises people like that are obnoxious to work for they're almost insufferable. Um, people that are assured of their own greatness, who constantly remind you of their pedigree, who are empowered to do everything that they do out of a sense of their own self-worth. Well, like I said, if you've ever worked for someone like that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, one of my best examples of, of that was I worked for this guy. His name was Viz. Um, and when he became the manager of this place I worked at, uh, he called us all to a meeting. He moved all of the tables out of the meeting room and he put wrestling mats on the floor and he sat on a high top stool and he looked at us all as we walked in and he said, come sit at my feet. I'm not kidding. I wish I was making that up. I stood in the corner and he told me like five or six times, no, sit down at my feet. I want you to hear what I have to say. And I was like, I can listen standing. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, today we're going to be looking at greatness in Christ's kingdom. Um, in, in your bulletin is the little sermon summary. It says this, in Christ's kingdom, greatness is not measured in power, position, or prestige. It is measured in humility and servanthood. Now, if we, just going through our text, I mean, you're going to see that that is absolutely the case. There is, that's, that's what Jesus is trying to say, but it's funny how he gets there. And it's funny how we've gotten there because this is kind of a conclusion to what we've been talking about the last several weeks in reference to the greatest being the least and the least being greatest, the, the first being last and the last being first. So let's, let's read our text. So verses 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, 
You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm sure you catch the irony, right? Verses 17 through 19, they're what, they're what people call a hinge passage. It's where the conclusion hinges, right? Like a, like a door. If you're going in somewhere that you want to be, let's say you're about to go into a big party, and, and you have to go through a doorway. If the door is not on a hinge and it's just jammed in, it's going to be really awkward to open. So 17 to 19 is kind of that hinge that lets us go into this conclusion where the last couple weeks we've, we've gone through what it means to labor in the vineyard, right? To not be indignant when other people get prestige and honor that we didn't and to just recognize that working for the amount that we're, we're told to work for is good. But also that the, 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 the master, when he goes and gives out everything, he, he gives it to the last first and the first last. That was a parable trying to illustrate this backwards view, that, that, or this backwards in comparison to the world way that God works. And then he tells his disciples that he's about to die. And this isn't the first time he's done it. It's the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that he said it. And he said it clear as day, right? I'm about to go to Jerusalem. We're going up. And again, if you're, if you're in this like first century messianic view, going up to Jerusalem is, 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 is supposed to be this wonderful march of victory, right? It's the king riding in after he's conquered all the Gentile nations. And so I, I don't know what's going through the mind of the apostles. I mean, they've spent almost three years with him by now. They should know what he means. When he says, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, <laughs> I'm going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But somehow, somehow, at least two of them miss it. Or, I, 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 we don't know the situation here, but... But this, this is kind of a hinge passage. Jesus is setting up his apostles for what it's going to look like. When we say that Jesus marched into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, right? It's more of a sarcastic description than anything else. Because Jesus was marching towards his death. He was marching towards uh, it, the, the triumph was that sin was about to be defeated. And yet they were, they were proclaiming like a king was walking through after a victory in battle, right? They were waving palm leaves. They were singing Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. That's what's about to happen. But again, they, they, don't, they don't quite understand what's happening. 
So, so there's a lot of misunderstandings around here, but Jesus is being as clear as he possibly can. There's no way to misunderstand this. And Matthew wants us to get that. Matthew includes this because he really wants you to understand how blunt he's being with the disciples. And how would you expect that they'd res respond? Previously, Peter has said, no, Lord, no, 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 that can't happen. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Previously, the disciples have remained silent and gone, we have no idea what's happening. Previously, the disciples were astonished at Jesus calming the, the wind and the waves and walking on the water and, and, and taking a nap in a boat in the middle of a storm. They were astonished at his teachings at the, of the, uh, at the Sermon on the, on the Mount. They were astonished as he confronts the Pharisees over and over again. And what did they do here? I have no idea. There's no response. I wonder if Matthew includes it, like almost to help us realize that they were zoning out. Like they were like, oh yeah, Jesus, uh, we know, we know. You've said this before. We know what's going to happen. But they miss it. Whether it's because they think he's being poetic or, or, or they think that like somehow this, this raised up on the third day is supposed to be like, a, like an exalted on a throne. I have no idea how they misunderstand it. But, but immediately following this, Matthew tells us with the word then in verse 20. James, John, and their mommy come up to Jesus and, 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 and uh, their mother makes this request for them. It's not a request of, of, of too much. I mean, just, hey, let them sit at, my, at, at your right hand and your left hand in this wonderful kingdom you're about to set up. Now, it's very natural for a mother to make bold requests for their kids, right? Um, it's, it's natural for a mom to, uh, to talk up their kids at the parent-teacher conference. Uh, my wife has done a lot of parent-teacher conferences where parents are in complete denial about how their kids could ever possibly do anything wrong or, or could have missed that much homework or, or fell asleep in class that many times. I don't think that one. I'm making that one up. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, the, but mothers, when it's natural for them to intercede for their kids, to try and rescue them from their failings, to even reason sometimes with authorities to keep them out of trouble. I'm sure none of you have ever had to do that with your kids, whether it's a principal, a cop, <laughs> um, but it's natural for, for mothers to do this. So, like, in my mind, I can, almost, I can almost picture it like James and John, you know, calling mom, but not really calling mom, but like going to her and be, be, being like, hey, 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 we're about to go into Jerusalem. We're, we're about to get there. Jesus' kingdom is coming. Can you, can, we have a request. Can you, can you go ask him for us to be like the most important people? When, when this all happens, can you do that? Like, I can almost see that in my head because we read in verse 20 that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him uh, with her sons. They're in tow. It's not, like, it's not like she goes up and she's just like, hey, Jesus, come over here for a second. Let me talk to you. I, I have a big request, but can I ask this of you? No. No, the boys are there. 
<laughs> this is just an awkward situation to walk into. Especially after Jesus says, I'm about to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And that's why I wonder if maybe they misunderstood what Jesus said. Maybe they, maybe just, maybe they just thought like he was saying it was possible that these things were going to happen. Or, or, or maybe when they saw raised up on the third day, the, the word means exalted, essentially. So maybe they thought like, oh, okay, after three days of being tortured, he'll go up on his throne and he'll be totally fine. Uh, I, I don't know what they were thinking to follow up with this. Anyway, it's, it's right for a mother to request, right? Uh, it's right for a mother to intercede. And so she does. She goes with James and John. Um, but, but, then, but then his response is, is just absolutely wonderful when he, you know. All right. So first off, the request, right? So that, uh, uh, ask, I, I ask that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Those are, those are the most important spots. So, so James and John are hoping maybe to be super apostles in this new coming kingdom. But then Jesus answers in verse 22. He says, you do not know what you are asking. How many times do you and I ask God for things and he doesn't grant it? Maybe it's because we don't know what we're asking for. But Jesus says that he cannot do what she's requesting. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. Have you ever thought about the fact that there's certain things that God cannot do? I mean, we, if you've taken any sort of like basic theology class, you've had one smart mouth who said, can God make a rock too big for him to lift? Like that's, that's, that's a violation of logic. Like that is what, you know, you know, those teachers that nicely say there's no such thing as a dumb question. No, that's a dumb question. That's that 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 is outside the bounds of smart. So um, there are certain things that God cannot do. He cannot sin because he's perfectly righteous and he cannot do something that violates his own plan. And that's essentially what's being laid up to Jesus here is a prayer that would violate his his very plan. Of what this new kingdom is supposed to look like. And so Jesus says, it's not mine to grant, I'm not able to do it. That's already prepared. That's already set up for exactly who my father has determined is going to go there. So who is it? Who's going to be at Jesus's right hand and left hand? Look at the text. Is it there? No, it's not. I appreciate that you looked down, though. Somebody at least looked at their Bible. So, <laughs> but, but, the, but the, the point isn't who it is. This is not a mystery for us to dive into and figure out like, okay, in the new kingdom, what exactly is, who exactly is going to be at the right hand and left hand of Jesus when the father gives Jesus the new heavens and new earth? What's that going to look like? That's not, that's not our, that's not the point. The point ultimately is found in the previous verse when he says, you don't know what you're asking. 
Many a time, like I said, do Jesus's people make requests where we don't understand the significance of what we're asking. And we are fortunate then that Jesus is not bound to answer those requests. This is one of my favorite texts, by the way, uh, against prosperity theology. Because if, if Jesus was bound to answer the requests of the faithful, uh, the mother goes up to Jesus and she's very humble. She's very kind. She asks very nicely. She kneels before him. If we had to have the right spell, the right formula, the right deeds in order to make God like the, like the cosmic gumball machine that you put in just the right amount of coin and it spits out that toy that you want, it's never the toy that you want. Anyway, but, but imagine if it was. You get the toy that you want every single time. That's prosperity theology. But here Jesus says, can't do it. Can't do it. It's already been prepared. It's already been done. God is not bound to answer our requests just because of how we approach him or how good we are or even how close we are to him. Remember, John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, so he says. I always think that's funny. But Jesus does tell them, he says, you will drink the cup that I am about to drink. Now, what that means is not that they're going to be sacrificed for sins. That's silly. No, what, what he means is they're going to suffer. If you know about James and John, you know that in Acts chapter 12, James is killed. James is, mur is martyred by Herod. He's killed with the sword in Acts 12 too. And John also died. He grew old, but he was exiled to a remote island for many years. That's Revelation 1.9, the Isle of Patmos. There's also legend that John was tarred and feathered or oiled and feathered. They didn't tar and feather back then, but oiled and feathered, um, but, but survived. There's also legend that he was poisoned. But ultimately, what we can take away is that John didn't have it easy either. He spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel and suffering for it. And that brings us to what this passage so far is really about. It's about the cost of discipleship. It's, a, it's about knowing that following Jesus is not an easy path. It's, it, following Jesus is, is or the cost of discipleship, that following Jesus is ultimately a path of suffering, which produces humility. It's being brought low, being made little of in the world, but being esteemed by God in the midst of that. That's an infinitely better uh, reality than living our best life now and earning God's wrath for us for eternity with no escape. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a long-standing statement that hell is separation from God. No, it's not. It's actually, God is there. God is present. God is punishing them. It's separation from God and all of his good attributes, but it's his wrath being poured out in hell constantly. The fire of God's wrath just being bur just burning dark wrath on people for all eternity. That's hell. So living your best life now, having all your rewards in this world, that's not a good thing. If you're walking a suffering path for following Jesus, praise God, be humbled. It's short-sighted to, to want to make this world our utopia, 
to make the things of this world our rewards when Jesus has promised us infinitely greater rewards for following him. Paul exclaims in Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul's doing that talking about how, how God is able to work in you things that you aren't even able to figure out that you're able to do. He has a power that's far above anything we could even imagine. Or in Mark 10, uh, Jesus says this, starting in verse 29. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left, left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So just think about that. Jesus promises much better rewards than you will ever go through here. I like how Dane Orland put it in the uh, Gentle and Lowly book. He, in, in I think it's the concluding chapter, he says, uh, he, he says that this life for Christians is the worst we'll ever face. So even though James and John's uh, mom's request couldn't be granted, even though they would face years of suffering. Well, not James. He wouldn't face too much longer. But, but John would face years of suffering for the sake of Jesus. This was the worst they were ever going to experience. So Jesus not answering that prayer is actually a good thing. It didn't violate his plan. And it, uh, it made it so that they would go on the path that God had set forth for them. So that's, that's good. But what we find in the concluding verses is it made the other disciples angry. Now, I think it's kind of weird to have your mommy go up to your teacher and make a request for you um, in front of all the other classmates. But apparently the other, the other disciples heard about this, and so they get indignant. If we look at verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, uh, last week, I, 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 I used the title Some Grumbling Workers for the, for the sermon, but the original title that I had was Indignant Workers um, because they got indignant. They got really mad, like, hey, these dudes only worked an hour. How come they're getting a denarius? Shouldn't you pay us more? And the disciples here also get indignant. They say, hey, why are they asking for like special favors? This is stupid. That, uh, no, that's not okay. And so they get really mad. But then Jesus comes in and he subverts their frustration. He doesn't even address the frustration. He just goes right around it. And he tells them three things that cause them to stop in their tracks. Uh, number one, he says the Gentiles, which basically just means the world, they celebrate their leadership positions, but it should not be so among you. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That means to, to, to walk around, to have all the pomp and circumstance, showing everybody else how, how not great they are in comparison to how great you are. I think of like the pharaohs of Egypt, right? Being carried on those, 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 uh, those poles with the chair in the middle and the lace all around and they wore all the fine clothes and they sat there looking around at everyone knowing how much less 
those people were than they are. The Gentiles did essentially the same thing. They would strut their stuff. Uh, whenever, whenever a uh, region would start ticking them off, they'd raise the taxes in them. They would punish them. They would remind them constantly how they're in charge and how much they deserve to be in charge. And not only that, but Gentile rulers would often kill, not fire, former employees. If you were like King Herod, you didn't fire people in your court. You just killed them and got new ones. So the first thing he tells them is that the Gentiles celebrate their leadership positions. So you shouldn't. You should be humble. And number two, he says, whoever will be great must take the form of a servant. And whoever would, would, would be great would also be a slave first. If you wish to be great in God's kingdom, you have to make yourself low. I don't mean lay down on the ground. I, don't, I also don't mean that you should uh, make yourself humble. Like just start doing the jobs nobody else wants and then get mad when nobody appreciates you. That's not, that's not the point. Humility is an attitude. It's a posture of the heart. It's a remembering, in this case, of our undeservingness in comparison to the good things that God gives us. That, that humble attitude of being willing to glorify God even when there's no glory in you. That's what Jesus is talking about. That servant heart. That desire to serve others and not just be served. And that's where Jesus closes. So uh, the third one is that Jesus, the Son of Man, came, came not to be served, but to serve. Just think about that. The Savior and the Creator of the world did not come to be fed grapes and have his toes fanned. But instead to die as a sacrifice for sinners. God did not deserve to die, but you and I do. God did not sin, he should not be punished, and yet he bore our punishment. Therefore, we should be willing to clean the toilets, to vacuum the floors, to scrub, to scrub the walls, to do yard work, to help our neighbors. We should be willing to serve others because our Lord served us. The greatest became the least for the least to be rescued into a great salvation. Therefore, we should be willing to, to, to humble ourselves and love those around us. Love the people that we don't like. Love the people that, that are undeserving. Love the people that we know are going to take advantage of us. We should empty ourselves of our, of our own pride become servants, and act in the likeness of our Savior. I kind of rephrase that. that, that Philippians 2.7 says this. It, it, Jesus emptied himself, uh, to expand it out a little bit, to paraphrase it, give you the meaning. It's he emptied himself of his divine rights by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is what Jesus did, and this is what Jesus' people should do. And we should also carry this encouragement as we do it. That Jesus expects no more from us than he did of himself. 
that's not really an encouragement. If you really think about it, God, God is God and I am not, right? <laughs> but it is an encouragement that Jesus is never going to push you beyond what he did. We're supposed to imitate him. Now, what, what were the three things that he said were going to happen to him before? He said he was going to be mocked, he was going to be flogged, and he was going to be crucified. Jesus will never expect any more than those three things from you. Being mocked for, the, for loving him, for being tortured for loving him, or being killed for loving him. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and that suffering atoned for the sins of his people. So again, there's kind of this backwards aspect uh, to what Jesus is saying here. If you want to be great, you have to be low. If you want to be great, you got to be nothing. You got to be humble in heart. You got to be willing to serve. You got to be willing to, to love. You got to be willing to do these things for people when you get nothing out of it. But, but he, he tells us these, to do this not because... Uh, he's the domineering leader who says, sit at my feet. I want to have you listen to what I have to say. No, Jesus is not a domineering leader. He's a servant leader. He serves by graciously listening to our, our prayers, our requests that he can't grant, that he won't grant. He, he showed us what it's like in, in gospel truth to make yourself low when you might deserve more. So therefore, we too should remember that in Christ's kingdom, the way up often looks like the way down. Um, I've, I've shown you guys the book before, but one of my favorite books is called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and poems and devotions by a guy named Arthur Bennett. You'll never hear of him. But I have the book in my office, and the very first prayer explains this paradox wonderfully. This paradox of the way up is the way down. The way great is the way of the servant. And uh, let, me, let me read just a, a little bit. This is a prayer called the Valley of Vision, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. Oh, friends, our culture needs to hear that one. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. That's paradoxical because usually you go to the high ground to see further, don't you? But when you're in the valley, you have nowhere to look but up. We are to be looking at Christ, the exalted servant, and we're supposed to mimic him by humbling ourselves and serving especially when we get nothing from it. That's the paradoxical point of this text. That the greatest in God's kingdom do not become great by power, prestige, by personality, by performance. The greatest in God's kingdom 
are the most humble, the quiet, the servants who expect not an ounce of gratitude. Now, if I might encourage you, knowing that this is the way you ought to be, thank a servant. Thank someone that serves without, without any uh, expectation of reward or glory. I'm going to embarrass Rick. Rick cleaned all the vines and stuff out here. And, and you know what? He, doesn't, he, he walks around and he tells people, like, man, I did a lot of work. But he's not doing it for his own glory. Uh, he just wants people to know, like, if you walk out there, you don't have to go out there with a chainsaw. Well, not a chainsaw. It's vines. What are those things? The hedge, hedge tripper, clippers. Like, so Rick does that. He does sound. And I think I said this last week, but the only time anybody ever realizes the sound guy is there is when something breaks. And everybody looks back at him. And then everybody knows who it is. And that's why I think they built the wall so high. <laughs> but, but thank someone who has that servant heart that just wants to do things to glorify God. Things that you and I will never notice. Things that it takes a lot of humility to do. There's a lot in our own lives that we could frankly focus on. But if we're selfish and we just focus on ourselves then we'll never be great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for this paradoxical reality. I'm grateful that you showed us how to do it, that you, you humbled yourself and you, were, uh, you became a servant for those that don't deserve any sort of serving. God, I pray that you would help us this week to become low so that we might look up and see your name lifted high and exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. The way down is the way up in Christ's kingdom. Go in peace, saints, and remember that this week.